Welcome to The Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your co-host, Matt Considine, here with our co-host, the professor, Dr. Kevin Moore. Professor, top of the morning to you. How are you doing today? How are you doing as we're settling into the new year? Happy New Year. Yes. Yes, happy, happy new, year. new Year. This is our, our first recording of you know, to give behind the scenes of the podcast world. First recording of 2024. I haven't seen you. Is What's your statute of limitations on the Happy New Year salutation? Uh, at least a month. You can go the full month if you haven't seen them. Come on. It's a lot. Eh. I, I, I'm, I'm not in favor of the full month. I, I'm uh, two week. I'm going to cut weeks. yours in half. I think, I think you get two weeks mid, once, uh, what is it? Martin Luther King Day is the other unofficial holiday of January. Once That's you your reach cutoff. the 15th of the month, that's your cutoff. What, That's it. Where do you stand on on uh, Christmas decorations, holiday decorations? How long can those stay up? <laughs> That's ironic because my wife is is already on me to take down the Christmas <laughs> oh lights. I, I'm more. I'm. I, I flip to the other direction. I'm like spring break. As long as they're down <laughs> before spring break, you're good. I love. I love Christmas decorations in cold in cold parts of the country. Man, come on. You got. It's dark and gray. You need some bright. Lights. I mean, even in in the warmer parts of the country, I got the lashing last night a little bit of. They need to come down and. Like, but they're so beautiful. You, you know, it's still dark, what, at 5.15? And the, turn on the Christmas lights. We've got, like, the railing inside all strung up. And it just gives that ambiance that, that still makes the, you know, that 6 to 8 o'clock period just still beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm uh, looking forward to warmer temps. I'm looking forward to the spring and some golf. Uh, we had a great guest. This is a, a fun guest for me today. I think it's a fun guest for everybody listening but from the, the great city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, we have Doug Stein coming on the show, kind of a Chattanooga golf legend, in, in at least my opinion, um, and many others. I, uh, he was one of my earliest guests, Professor. So yeah. uh, it's, it's kind of cool to see, I think it was 2018, Doug was on the show and told me a little bit about uh, all his life in golf, which is quite enchanted. He's been in a bunch of places and seen a bunch of things. Uh, Seth Rayner, when you and I brought up Seth Rayner a couple shows ago, he was one of the first people on my mind to talk to uh, because of the completed renovation or restoration at uh, at Lookout Mountain, which was a long, long project Doug was always very passionate about. And uh, and so it's just kind of a little bit of a victory lap for him, I think, because they have a fully restored golf course at Lookout and, and he was uh, the champion of that from a very early, early uh, uh point at least in the club's history so i uh I'm, I'm excited i'm really excited to chat with them yeah having been fortunate enough to already play the the course a few times since it's renovation it's absolutely stunning and then just strengthens chattanooga's foothold in the golf world um you know it's still that I, I, you know it's maybe not appropriate to call it a hidden gem but i think in terms of golf destinations you could probably still call it that just in terms of the the quantity of quality courses right like there's maybe not a ton of courses in chattanooga but the courses there are amazing. And obviously, Doug's been a big, big part of that um, and having a Chattanooga golf scene being what it was. And, you know, it's always on my radar is, you know, I love Athens. Maybe, you know, if I never move, I'll still be a happy person. But if I'm moving somewhere, Chattanooga is definitely on my on my short, short list for that exact reason of being able to play places like Lookout, Black Creek, Sweetens Cove, Honors. I'm sure Chattanooga Golf and Country Club will go under renovation sooner than later just to you know, stay on the pedigree of the other courses in the area. I wouldn't be shocked. So yeah, no reason not to, got, if you haven't been there, there's no reason not to get Chattanooga and spend a week playing golf around that area and drive up to Swanee or Holston Hills. 
you know, those are within an hour and a half or so. Um, so. Exactly. I was going to say you missed a couple and a Donald Ross Muni. That's right. In the city, which is, uh, so it kind of rounds out on all perspective. I, I, I remember our 2018 focus on the city that uh, really, like I, I had to do my research. I got, obviously got to uh, get there. That was probably my first visit that year. Um, yeah, it's one of, it's still, it'll be interesting to hear Doug's perspective from that time to now has exposure for uh, Chattanooga being this great golf town. Uh, has that grown? And has that, has that changed the numbers and memberships and things? Um, well, first, let's, let's make sure we thank our friends at Titleist for their support of both New Club Golf Society and our annual Quest for the Crown, uh, as well as this show and the Bag Drop podcast. You know, Titleist um, is their club fitting community has been really cool to get some exposure to. And they are now in the midst of scheduling our 2023 quest for the crown champions. So awesome. uh, guys are getting fitted into their uh, T series irons. Uh, I, I think the, the, uh, the experience is, is worth the prize itself, but obviously walking away with a new set of clubs, it, it makes anybody feel good. And the Titleist approach to fitting is built on three dimensions of irons, distance control, dispersion control, and descent angle. Finding the optimal balance of all three treats you to a whole new level of approach and consistency. So check out Titleist.com. You can see their full list of uh, club certified Titleist club fitters all around the country. Uh, thank you to Titleist for your support. Also, want to squeeze in just one shout out if it's okay, Professor. Yeah, what you got? Hyperice. Hyperice. Why? Why the golf season's coming? I'm I'll getting say, how older. You feeling? You're, I, you're hurting already. I'm doing. Uh, no, I, these guys at Hyperice we were introduced to, and I just wanted to give them a shout out because they were one of our prizes for the uh, the quest for the crown and in, in our second place teams. Um, they their product. I, I don't know if you're in Normatech is one of their brands that that does the the ice. Uh, uh, the compression, the electrodes. Like, are you aware of the, these things? You, you sound, I'm, like, I'm my, gonna be, you sound I think, like my dad right now, is what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Chucky Hyperized is, they, he's called it. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, man, like, it, and it's all over the PGA Tour. Like, these guys all have their social uh, uh, media where they're sh showing pictures of the recovery and every after every round. Like, this is how those guys do it, though. I mean, recovery is, is a under appreciated aspect of, of golf, I think, and how you, you, more people would walk, you know, how I'm such an advocate for walking the golf course and I, I, recovery is a part of that. So if you feel like, ah, oh, it's easier getting in a cart and my body doesn't feel great. My legs aren't moving like they used to get yourself some products from Hyperice and start recovering. It's the year of recovery for me, man. I'm going to start. I think we're, we're talking to them about having a recovery station at maybe the spring meeting this year. Oh, it's sweet. Love it. So there, there's uh, just wanted to get a quick shout out to the to the friends, Jake, Joe. Uh, thank you guys for your support. Big recovery guy, big, definitely big recovery guy. All right, before we get to Doug, we got you don't want to skip over the fact of the day, do you? New year, and you're gonna it's the year gonna of cut education for always. It's always the year of education. Yes, let's hear it. Where you at on your resolutions? Can you give a quick rundown of what, where, how, how's your, how are you progressing? What are they, and where you at? Well, I only established golf resolutions from our last show, right, yep. in, the, in the new year. And we talked a little bit about that on the England episode. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> I did not establish any for uh, my personal self other than scheduling. Like, I, I think I'm, I'm continuing that um, out of my email into my calendar routine. Yeah, that you mentioned of, last time, yeah. A blocking time for activities to really kind of give my sense of priority of what needs to get done uh, uh, ahead of others. So that is continuing, 
but I wouldn't really call that a resolution. I think that was more of a organate organizational uh, structure thing for me. Yeah. But nice. What about what, what teach us? I mean, what, I'm what, all what back about on resolution? the health stuff, right? So maybe for the first couple of months, I'm going to be as annoying as I was last year in whatever podcast I'm listening to, predominantly Huberman Lab. Um, but yeah, because I'm big, big on the health kick, right? No alcohol, no sweets, yada yada yada. But I love my sugar, right? You know, you know that. Learned something very fascinating on um, this December episode on a Huberman um, podcast. I forget the the doctor's name he had on, but talking about sugar and I mean sugars and processed food and how bad it is for us. But really, the the doctor went into also the food industry and how they promote the consuming of sugar and problematic sugars to extend like one of the this isn't the fact today, but one of the most alarming numbers was something like 73% of the food in grocery stores shouldn't be classified as food by today's doctor's health standards, meaning that it doesn't like what it does in your body doesn't do what food should do. Um, so it doesn't really help you grow or do anything like that. But anyways, the one that I learned that was that I appreciate is so my sweet getaway right now to stay away from the bad sweets. I, I rely on fruit, but I've always, you know, it's doctors. I mean, when we grew up as kids, even we're like, ah, fruits because of sugars might not be that good. But actually fruits are pretty good, especially berries. And here's why. The key is with sugar, is it combined with fiber, right? Is there fiber? And so if you think about berries, there's actually a high amount of fiber yeah. in berries. And so what this does, I might get the specific details of this wrong. It's been about a week since I listened to it, but it's something along the lines, what fiber does into the sugar gets it through your intestinal system down to actually your gut microbiome. And when it gets down to your gut microbiome, then it's your gut microbiome that's consuming the sugar. And that's actually not you consuming the sugar. Your gut microbiome is an independent world of you. So this is why if you ever hear your doctor or a dietitian say a calorie is a calorie, you, you need to find someone new. Because that's not true at all. If it gets to your gut microbiome, that calorie is actually not a calorie for you. It's a calorie for your gut microbiome. So with sugar, if it's combined with fiber, and I forget the details how it works, it either, there's like a, I think it's like a maybe dualistic working at fiber coats your intestinal system, which helps move the sugar through, but it also bonds to sugar and moves it down through your intestinal system to the gut microbiome. But anyways, ignoring those details, if they're right or wrong, the key is getting, if you are consuming sugar, you want to get into your gut microbiome so it gets consumed by that and feeds, um, feeds, feeds that area rather than moving into what I guess it would be, I think it's your liver or whatever that moves into and gets turned into a fat molecule. And, you know, if you're not doing what you need to do to burn it off, then you run into the obesity, the obesity problem that we um, have in the United States. So anyways, all that in all, if you're worried about fruits, they're just fine. Don't, don't worry about consuming berries. And even the doctor's like, you can honestly, it's hard to eat too much fruit. Like certainly you don't want to just sit there eating it all day because there is sugar in it, but you'd have to consume a lot over a long time of period for it to ever become problematic. So if you got a sweet tooth like me, it's okay to rely on berries to, to get you out of it. I thought you were going to start adding fiber supplements to your ice cream so the professor can do his guilty pleasures without any I tell you what, a few, any intervention. A few of my Chattanooga buddies I'm going to have the Christmas dinner up uh, tomorrow with, they're all in on the fiber pills. And they, they swear <laughs> by them in terms of other reasons too, but they say consume those fiber pills and it helps out your digestive system a lot. They, they, they sold right, them by the bottle. It's crazy. We, we've made our guest wait long enough, but I hope that, you know, he got some information there. That's, that's a good one for the start of the new year, Professor. Actually, it was timely because I think our, my, my daughter, uh, who's three, eats, if we didn't regulate, she'd probably have 15 bananas a day. The kid loves bananas. She's a little chimpanzee. 
And, uh, and I got an article in my Google, you know, or uh, whoever, Apple News, that they, uh, there was an article about too many bananas that you can, you know, are, ban- are too many bananas good for you? So the title of the article, I'm like, well, that's weird that I'm getting that, you know, first article today. It must be listening to us or something. But, uh, but yeah, that's it. it and I, I shared that. I didn't read the full article, but I shared that with a pe- pediatrician brother-in-law and he was like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Like fiber and there's, there's potassium. There's a lot of good things. Yeah, it's a lot of sugar, but don't, don't sweat it. Your kid eating bananas is, is just a-okay. A lot of information out there. So thank you, Professor, for giving us, giving us some good, uh, good health benefits to start the new year. Let's get to our show. Uh, one Mia culpa from last week's episode. Uh-oh. What do we miss? The off? Royal Patriots. No, we, we have- Oh, we got, we the, we got the data. Listeners, we got the research. Listeners of this podcast looking out for us. Everyone was giving us a hard time about how the royal patronage and how a club becomes royal. Uh, well, Professor, we have our answer. Thank you, Paul Wellman. I used to call Paul a, he's a member of New Club. He's a listener in this podcast. Amazing person. I used to call him an amateur historian. He is no amateur. He is now, I think, a full-fledged historian, very respected in the, the golf history uh, world for a lot of the work that he did um, uh, about Chicago clubs and, uh, and oh my gosh, blocking on the, the gentleman that just got inducted to the Illinois Hall of Fame. But uh, Paul, thanks for listening and sending some info our way. So Scott McPherson wrote a book, Golf's Royal Clubs, that gave all the answers and Paul uh, found it for us. The captain of the Perth Golfing Society, a little golf society without a golf club uh, tra- blazed the trail of history here. Uh, Lord Kennard went on a trip from the, the Perth Golfing Society to London. He was going to address King William IV, uh, who had recently taken up the game, been enchanted with the game of golf. While there, Kennard asked the king if we would become a patron of the society and if the club could, in turn, call itself Royal Perth Golfing Society. Uh-huh. So William agreed, and the movement was born. So that was the first, a golf society. Not, not what we thought. Do you know who was second? Do you have any guesses on who would be second? Kent. Mm. Well, the society at the time, known as St. Andrew's Golfers, uh. saw this, and they Duh. ended up requesting the same royal patronage. Uh. And... Uh, renamed itself the Royal and Ancient Golf should, Club of St. Andrews. So there you have it. So those are the first two. But I love, I mean, Perth, shout out Andy White, another listener of the podcast from Perth, big supporter of Perth Football Club. Uh, boy, that uh, that was cool to get that little tidbit this morning before we start recording. So without, thank you, Paul, for keeping us honest, keeping us on, on we, we want to get factual information from this show. That was a really fun England series. Uh, all the royal clubs, new club will be will be applying. I think we go probably got to go through Prince William at this point, King Charles. I don't know, but we'll we'll see if we can get some royal patronage. Let's get to today's royal guest, Let's Doug Stein. What do you say, Professor? Yeah. All right, Doug Stein, welcome to the backdrop. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be back. By the way, I heard you talking about the kings. I am I have my own kingdom here, the kingdom of Marvin Lane. So we'll give you the royal. We'll give you the royal patronage. You'll you become. <laughs> there you go. We didn't have to wait. Kingdom of Marvin Lane. We didn't have to wait long. 
<laughs> That's great. Thank you for bestowing that on us today, Doug. Doug, thanks for for being here. I mean, uh, as I told the professor in our intro, you and I talked uh, 2018, which is wild to think that that was that long ago. But you were uh, one of the, I kept we were taking our spring meeting to Chattanooga, and I was calling around, talking to different people, where to play talking about the golf scene outside of Sweetens, which was the place that still hosts us for our annual spring meeting. And um, your name came up more than once of someone to talk to. And um, I think it's fun for me to kind of revisit a, a little bit of that conversation with you because a lot's happened Never in doubt. the Chattanooga golf scene over the last five years. Yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride since 2018 here. What would you say was the highlight? I'm guessing uh, Lookout Mountain, perhaps, yeah, or no other doubt. others. Yeah, look the the work at Lookout Mountain certainly was an unexpected, unexpected. highlight. Um, after King Emig had died in 2015, I'd kind of given up on the dream of ever completing the golf course, and I am constantly reminding people when they talk about Lookout Mountain that it's not a restoration; it's a completion, because Lookout. As with many Rainer courses of that era, was not ever finished. And look out, especially because the whole place was a gigantic slab of rock. So they they didn't get the fairway bunkers in. The greenside bunkering was in pretty much because the, the green pads had been scraped up from the area that was to become waste areas in between the holes. And so they had, you know, these banks type, really more like Charles Banks kind of green pads built up. But, uh, you know, the fairway bunkers they couldn't put in, they were, they were moving their dirt with mules and drag pans. So it's, it's a long way from that to the bulldozer and excavator and all that kind of stuff. So am I understanding this right in what you're describing there for the, because of that rocky soil and how tough that ground was for the green pads, they raised up and that's why they could build the bunkers in. But for the fairways, obviously you wouldn't build up all the fairways right. across the entire ground. So it was tough to cut in the bunkers there. I'm going to take an opportunity to correct the professor. It was not rocky soil. It was rock. <laughs> <laughs> no, no soil. <laughs> no, there was no dirt. And there's still, you know, there's still places on the Lookout Mountain Golf Course where the, the ledge rock just shows through right in the middle of the fairway in some places. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it's on the edges, but there's places where rock comes right through. And when it doesn't rain for two weeks, you can see everywhere where there's rock right next to the surface. Hmm. Well. Hmm. Take us, uh, I, I, I know you, the Rainer Report, we talked about five years ago. And I thought this was fascinating, Professor. I, you would get some interest out of this. But uh, the Rainer Report, as you said on that show, Doug, was something you put together along with other members of the club. I think King Emig was a part of it. Uh, you, you had George Botto as a big source for it. But just tell us about you know, you're busy running the, a construction company, the oldest in Chattanooga. And uh, you, you dedicated a lot of time to researching Seth Rayner. You got involved, I believe, with the Rayner Golf Society. Um, King and I started us, the Rayner Society. He was the one to start it. Okay. King and I. And so tell us, tell us about that adventure and, and how it, 
how it impacted this last year where you guys were actually in the dirt now completing, as you said, completing this project at Lookout Mountain. Were you going back to your old notes with the with the architects, Kyle Franz and Tyler Ray? Were you were you referencing all the stuff that you guys had had dug up in that that journey? That and more, because you know what what we learned um, in in the nineties was only a part of what we know now. Uh, Kevin's a professor. My I've got a seventeen year old boy who's a junior in high school. Is my youngest son. And he's he's six foot six. I just got them fit. My, both my sons fitted, by the way, with T series Titleist irons. You were talking about in your opening. Um, they just they just got them. They're too long for me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> his uh, history professor sent home a question for the parents on actually for the grandparents on Grandparents Day, but because I'm so old as a parent, I get the grandparents day questions. And it was, the question was, what is history? And I thought, what an interesting question. What is history? And we sat around as a family and talked about it, went back and forth. And we came up with the answer that history is the study of what actually happened in the past by people who were not actually there. Mm. And the, the and, and other than recent history, that's true. So we're going back and we're constantly reconstructing history and learning more history. And in the case of Lookout Mountain, like almost every other real estate development or thing that was built back then, the guy that was doing the work, in this case, Garnet Carter, they didn't write down the story of all the stuff that didn't go well. But the history of Lookout Mountain's development is like the development nightmare of all time. So, and this is all stuff that we, we were touching on and we knew a little bit about, but we didn't understand what had actually happened. And uh, even after the, the, the younger members of Lookout Mountain Golf Club that who, who pressed to get the course finally redone and get the greens redone, which was always part of what we called son of long range plan. Um, you know, I started reading some more and I read a book uh, called Rising Tide about the great Mississippi flood of 1927. And, you know, it all tied together with kind of what happened at Lookout Mountain. And it made me go back and research some of the what was going on in the country at the time that this golf course was under construction. So here's I'm going to try to make the timeline really quick. <clears throat> Scott Probasco Sr., who went to Hotchkiss School, which is where uh, Rayner found Banks when he was hired to do nine holes up there. He was hired by Scott Probasco. I got a letter in the last week from a guy that's researching a book on Hotchkiss. That was a letter from Scott Probasco from 1958 saying, hey, I gave you all $3,000 in 2011 or 15 or something to build rebuild the golf course, and I'm not listed on the on the donor list. Wasn't that a donation? So, and he, and he, and he mentions Rainer in the letter and he, he spells his name R A I N E R. <laughs> so, so this guy uh, speculates that Rainer did Hotchkiss as part of a package deal with Probasco to do lookout mountain or Fairland golf club at the time. 
So that was all part of the package. But the Fairland was the plum job, and Hotchkiss was just something that he knocked out at Mr. Probasco's request with the promise of the Fairland job to come. Now, there's no record that says that that is what happened, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. So anyway, that's where Rainer meets Banks. And then, so they, they hire Rainer to do the golf course, and they've already uh, made a deal with this hotel developer, Commodore J. Perry Stoltz. I think they called him Commodore because he had a boat. He wasn't ever in the Navy. <laughs> so Commodore Stoltz has this hotel in Miami called the wonderful Fleetwood of Miami beach. Okay. And, and, and the, the deal was there was a central tower and two wings and in the tower, which was taller, 15 stories on top was a radio station. First radio station in the United States started broadcasting in 1920. So this is a new deal. This is new tech. And they've got, they've got, he's got this radio station in this hotel in Miami beach and there's postcards of it. It's supposed to be wonderful. And so Garnet Carter and OB Andrews, another investor in this project, go down to Miami to talk to Commodore Stoltz about building a hotel on lookout mountain, this part of the Fairland development. And they go down there and in typical Stoltz faction and Garnet Carter fashion, they end up investing in three other hotels, one in Hendersonville, North Carolina, the hotel on Lookout Mountain, and a hotel in Augusta, Georgia, on the Fruitlands Nursery, which is where Augusta National is now. So mm -hmm. the first talk of developing that land as a golf course happened in conjunction with this project here on Lookout Mountain. So they go, and, and he, he recruits them. So this in and Probasco tells him you have to hire Rainer. He's the best in the business to do the golf course. He designs the golf course and then he dies 10 weeks after the plans are complete. And the plans are complete in November of 25. He dies in January of 26. So the first bad thing that happens is your, your course designer dies. So banks picks up most of the projects on the Eastern part of the United States, including Fisher's Island, Camargo, there's several clubs in that category that were finished by banks and lookout was one of them and they start to do the work and they find out, Hey, this, this is beautiful land, but it's a solid slab of rock. And what are we going to do? In the meantime, Garnet Carter has promised all of his potential members. We're going to be playing golf in the fall of 1926. Okay. Oh, wow. so they're, they're behind schedule before they even turn over the first spoonful of dirt and they're yeah, going so and going months, and going right? in eight months we're playing golf yeah and and they're you know back then golf courses had one kind of grass on them greens fairways and roughs were all differentiated by the height of cut they didn't have different grasses like we are used to now so everything was going to be common bermuda so in August, in a panic, they say, we're going to have to seed this place. We're going to have to get some grass up so we can be playing. And he brings in additional topsoil and mixes common Bermuda seed in with it, brings it up, spreads it over the whole golf course, and then the remnant of a tropical depression, which is actually the beginning of the nine months of rain that flood the entire Mississippi River Valley, washes it off. So that's why Lookout has these rills in it which you can see in some of the pictures that you've seen online. 
it has these this, what I call rumpled bed sheet fairways. And the steeper the ground is, the more of a rumple there is. Well, when we went in the ground in 1998 to do the first work with Brian Silva, we found huge pockets of topsoil washed into the crevices in the rock, which confirmed the story. Nobody ever wrote that story down. Paul uh, Garnet Carter didn't say, hey, we couldn't finish the golf course. So anyway, they can't finish the course and get everybody playing. And so his fallback is to invent Tom Thumb golf. So the creation of miniature golf, putt-putt as you call it, or goonie golf as we call it here, was was here on Lookout Mountain at the Fairland Club, which had already been built, the end, Fairland Inn. And they were playing putt-putt golf on, on seed hole greens or something like that. So they were playing golf by the fall. In September, so they're fighting with Walker County over whether they can build a 15-story hotel and it's going to have a radio station in the top of it, WFOF, Wonderful Fleetwood of Fairland. And the Fleetwood Hotel in Hendersonville, North Carolina, is almost complete. Augusta hasn't started yet. And on September 19th, I think, of 1926, a Category 4 hurricane hits Miami Beach and flattens the wonderful Fleetwood of Miami Beach. And in one day, Commodore Stoltz is out of business, and all of the hotel stuff is done. So they're scrambling again. And and then, you know, the rains continue over the wintertime and into the spring. And by April of 27, the Mississippi River Valley is flooded and 10% of the United States economy is underwater. I mean, think about it. That, that was a, if you read that book, the, the, the effect that had on the culture at the time was unbelievable. And, and uh, Garnet Carter's brother then, was the backstop that got the hotel that you see from Lookout Mountains Course that is now Covenant College. That hotel, he he got built with another hotelier. That's not the original location of what was supposed to be the Lookout Mountain Hotel. And as a as confirmation of that, that, you know, this isn't written down anywhere, but that hotel's in Dade County, who wasn't fighting them about how tall it could be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about it? I mean, that's uh, your your description of history is is so well done, and I almost I also think history is the study of why things are the way they are, and and sometimes we just accept that there's a certain way things are done. But usually, for me, the more I've dug into these stories and talked to people like you, Doug, that are starting to piece together all the different puzzle. Uh, it really explains, you know, why things are the, are where they're at, and and then it helps educate where we go forward. That's why I love so much about um, history and golf history. I mean, it's it's not all there. I and mean, Rayner was one of the least documented uh, Golden Age architects, right? He didn't really write things down, and he didn't uh, draw so. plans like Ross. He didn't he didn't have detailed, you know plus or minus a foot drawings of his greens with profiles and things like Ross has. You mentioned the municipal course in Chattanooga is a Donald Ross Brainerd golf club. It's called. And I had a friend of mine come to me some years ago with the plans for that, that he had found, I think in the Tufts archives. And he came back and said, I think this is Chattanooga golf and country club, which was also a Ross. And I started looking at it and I said, this is not Chattanooga golf country club. This is Brainerd. And it's backwards and a couple of holes have changed, but the routing there is pretty much intact. And that's a, 
that would be a great project for some of you young people to take off because it, it would be a great yeah. golf course. It could be, you know, echo the, the Charleston municipal work that they did down there. And, there and, go. uh, whoever, some, someone, somebody listening, pick up that torch. That's, we have a, the plan. A decade project. I've taken Rob Collins out there to look at it with, uh, Ron Witten and Rob and I went out there. You know, it's, it's definitely doable. Let's, uh, let's talk about the new guys that you, that the, the club hired at Lookout to come in and complete the, the golf course, as you put it, um, Kyle Franz, Tyler Ray, you know, two hot names up and coming. And I think we've, gosh, think about the year that those two have had the last five years. My goodness, have they been busy? Um, and they, they teamed up for this. So tell us a little bit about that selection process from a club standpoint and, and how you ended up with two, two of arguably the, the hottest, uh, in, in the game right now? Well, you know, originally King and I kind of drove the process for the selection of an architect originally to, at that time we were talking about restoring the golf course cause we didn't really know how, how incomplete it was. So, um, we went through that whole process and then Brian Silva took off and did a lot of, golf courses and just recently last year i think or two years ago completed metairie country club in new orleans and and you can tell from that work how much brian has learned too you know when when we undertook it in 1998 nobody had done a whole rainer golf course done a whole restoration as we called it then and uh, there were, there was some work going on at Yeamans Hall that we knew about and other places that done things, but the, the best Rainer courses were well-preserved, not rent, not restored. They were just well-preserved like Chicago and Shore Acres and Camargo and places like that. National Golf Links being the original. And so, uh, after a few years, we, you know, Brian had told us the, you know, we, we didn't have all the money we needed to do a full restoration. And rather than try to convince the memory, membership to do that, we went with a project that we thought we could get them to pay for. Because people, it, this was at the tail end of the, of the era of renovating a golf course to make it relevant to the modern game. That was kind of the mantra. Mm. So they weren't trying to restore a great course they were trying to make an old great course into a new great course and and their ideas about what made great courses were all kind of related to how long and hard it was <laughs> you know it was more mm -hmm. like bowling from a great distance and uh <laughs> i love that <laughs> uh, so you know we just there weren't there wasn't much to draw on but I did in the process of that, find the original plans for the Fairland golf course. And most Rainer courses at that time didn't have their original plans. And what I, what I ended up with were not the first set of plans that I saw, which probably still exists somewhere. And I don't, I don't know where, but I got the working drawings that had all the notes on it, the colored everything in it, and had more detail than the, the actual blueprints that they used to build the golf course. So, 
So originally Brian Silva did that. And he said, because you're not doing everything, there were five greens that had been hit with a bulldozer, two of them destroyed. We rebuilt those. That's the punch bowl and the double plateau back in 98. And then we put the fairway bunkering in and Brian advised us that once they see how great the golf course is when the, when the fairway bunkering is in place and that's what dictates the strategy, then they'll want to complete the green project. Well, that was wrong. They, they loved it so much when they got it that they just kind of stuck with it. And then we finally convinced them that we needed to, to hire, to go with long range plan. And then they decided they didn't want to use silver for that. And then we, King and I had become enamored with Gil Hans, who I had met when I was consulting with what became West Haven golf course in Franklin, Tennessee, which is an Arthur Hills course now. Um, so uh, Tom Doak and Gil Hans were together then as Renaissance golf. We had a, got a proposal from them. And so we, we selected Doak and presented him to the membership and, by the time that all that was finished, it was 2009. And they said, no, we're not going to spend any money on it. So, you know, we were heartbroken that they, it didn't get done, but the course was a lot better and it was fun to play the way it was. And then King died in May of 2015. And I just thought, well, this is it. You know, the, the economy still really hadn't recovered by then. King was a big, uh, booster of Rob Collins and Sweetens Cove when that was being built. And that was also in the depths of economic terrors. So, uh, you know, King died before, before Sweetens got us established, you know, it was still mm-hmm. Rob, Rob and a lawnmower out there. So, <laughs> um, then, in 2020, I think it was 220, Lookout hosted the, they had the swing ding, their annual member guest for which they make the greens impossibly fast. And then they had the state match play, TGA match play. So the, although the course is in Georgia, they're members of the Tennessee Golf Association. And uh, they had the match play and they pressed the greens a little bit too hard. And by August, they pretty much lost them. Mm-hmm. And the younger members of the club came to me and said, we need to, and Gil Hans's plan had been put into the bylaws, although they didn't agree to pay for it. They had adopted the plan. And Gil Hans's plan was basically Silva's plan and rebuild and expanding the greens, not rebuilding them because you know what informed decision-making at that time was we're not going to spend any money. <laughs> so we were just going to expand the greens and, and we had, worked with Gil at Swanee building that nine hole golf course. I was a consultant to the university on that. And King was a graduate and a guy named Chris Haymeyer was actively involved. And I worked with the university and now my daughter goes to school there. <laughs> so, uh, great school. yeah, it's, it's great. And that's a great little nine hole golf course. Uh, that Gil built. So all during that period, you know, there's nothing going on. I'm, I'm working with Gil and talking to Gil frequently. And then all of a sudden his career takes off with the Olympic course in Rio. And in 20, they lose the greens and the younger members come to me and said, we need, you know, they know I've no Gil. And 
uh, said, we need you to get Gil Hans to come back and get the course. And I said, well, y'all remember that I told you that in hiring an architect, the strategy is to hit your wagon to a rising star. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, his star has risen. So he, mm -hmm. you know, the answer is going to be, you know, no, can't get to you. You want, and they want to do it now. So I went and asked him anyway. And, uh, he said, I can get to it in 2026. And I took that back to him and they said, no, we got to find somebody else. So I, we embarked on a search and we interviewed three people and Franz and Ray were a package deal at that time. And, you know, they had worked with Gil. They understood the architecture. Um, we did tours of the course with them. And at that time, Kyle France, you know, I've been on that golf course with a lot of architects over my lifetime. And Kyle France saw things that nobody else had ever seen. Hmm. He, he really has got an unbelievable eye for routing and for land shapes and all that kind of stuff. And Tyler is, is, uh, uh, you know, sitting on the dozer seat kind of shaping guy. And, you know, I just thought they were a, a perfect, uh, solution, but we, we interviewed some other folks, but we, we suggest chose them. They made a proposal and we chose them and that's how they got to work. I asked, uh, Gil about him. He said, they're, they're great. They'll be great. So they were given Hans's plan to, to build, but that's not what the membership wanted anymore. They wanted the, all of the greens to be rebuilt, completely rebuilt because they, the old greens had died, you know, and they were worn out mm -hmm. and it was impossible to fix them. So then when Kyle and, and Tyler got here, I pulled out the working drawing and we looked at it in the maintenance barn and, and their eyes bugged out of their head and said, this is what we've got to do. So, you know, there's some things on that plan that were not on Hans's plan because Hans's plan used for the most part, Silva's bunkering and the, the holes that we had blasted in the rock to get those bunkers in, which were smaller than the bunker shown on Rainer's original plan because it was solid rock. You know, we're, we're trying, we're working with a budget. Well, this time they want to get all that rock out there. And, and actually in some of the bunkers that have been built, there is exposed rock in the bunker which is going to be one of the things that's more controversial. I think when people play the golf course, although obviously I've played it a lot and I've not once hit one of those rocks. I hadn't seen anybody hit one of those rocks, but there are rocks in the bunkers, notably to the right of 16 green. Mm -hmm. I've been up there next to it, but I hadn't been in, I hadn't hit it, which tells you, I probably am not hitting enough club. <laughs> <laughs> So that's, Doug, that's question. where it got to. So that's why I tell the, the members and the people that ask about it, I said, this is really not a restoration. This is a completion using guys who's, who understand what the vision was to be. And, and the other part of it is Rainer and Banks and CB McDonald and Donna Ross for that matter, were getting around on trains. They weren't flying planes and they didn't spend days on site. They couldn't do that. You know, Rainer was taking boat trips out to Hawaii. So, you know, they were, it was impossible for them to be on site all the time. So once the routing and the green pads were kind of built, the, I think the interior contours 
tended to not be as bold as they might have been if they were there all the time and not as much like the original. So the, the Eden holes, instead of actually ending up like the 11th at St. Andrews been ended up being just kind of flat disc pointed downhill. Cause you know, they, they weren't there to do it. The, the exception being if CB McDonald was on the property, the greens and the shapes and the landforms are bolder and have more movement in them. So St. Louis is a perfect example of, of that, which we had seen mm-hmm. back then. He was there, you know, his, the double plateau at St. Louis, which they, which is, they had labeled the beer. It's the double plateau, but the actual beer it's is on the back and it's a par five and it's wild. It's a big old, hmm. like a red cross with, three plateaus on it have y'all played that i have not um i did yeah back in uh gosh 2017 so yeah it's it is it is wild i i I wasn't as astute then about what templates were and what to pay attention to but i remember that green very well yeah so mcdonald if mcdonald's on property there's a lot bigger bolder stuff Doug, you're touching on something. I, I was so looking forward to getting you on because I wanted to ask this question. I've been fortunate enough to play Lookout a ton before the completion and now several times after. And, I mean, it's gorgeous. But I could see, like, pre the completion project, having played a lot, I could see, like, the bunkering, the fairway bunkering, and how wonderful it would be with a little bit of a touch-up and a little bit of work. What I wasn't anticipating was the green work when I came back and got to play it since the, the completion. And it just, from the first hole... Every green I got to, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. There's there's tons of character to it, right? It's The shots are completely different playing into the greens than they were pre the completion of the project. And, and so what I walked away with, especially when I got to the punch bowl, was how much of that was part of the original plans versus, I know Tyler likes his flair, right? Like Tyler gets on that bulldozer and I've seen his work at Beverly and some other place and he's, he's just great at shaping the ground. So I walked away wondering how much was that original plans versus how much did Kyle, it, it, how much in the course now and the completion do we see of Kyle and Tyler and the balance between those two? Um, Quite a bit, I'd say. But, but you know, they're, Kyle and Tyler are two of the most accomplished minds, young minds in contemporary golf course architecture. They've studied the old designs and they understand what the, the templates were to be. So they're bringing the actual uh, knowledge of the Redan and North Berwick and the Eden hole at St. Andrews and the road hole at St. Andrews, they're bringing actual knowledge of, of the original templates and, and building that, putting that into what was built at lookout. So that's why I call it a completion rather than a restoration, because I think the original course was not fully completed. Certainly the fairway bunkers, not, but the greens eat too. They were just green pads. And it, at some point it, it became an issue. This is not written down by the developer, by the way. At some point it just became grass. It, we got to be playing golf. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, we're going to take what we got. This is what it is. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, we had pictures and there was evidence of some of the 
some of the bolder things were actually built on the original course. And so King and I talked to the guy that actually drove the bulldozer that shaved the sides off the punch bowl, the mm-hmm. two sides in the back and, and built a new 12th tee with it. Uh, he King's father, Lou Emick, who's a, one of the greatest amateurs of all time, uh, three-time senior amateur champion, uh, played the golf course a lot and said the 17th green was like hitting onto a top hat. And, you know, you can reconstruct the history and say, well, that's what happens when you stick a pin in the middle of a double plateau green and then cut a 40-foot circle around it. You end up with mm-hmm. the playable part of the green being the back part of the plateau and nobody being able to get the ball up there. You know, mm-hmm. it was just so they flattened that thing. And the, and the 17th green when I joined the club was flat as a pancake. Wow. With a little scab wow. bunker front right that you could putt out of. And most people did. <laughs> wow, that's wow. entirely different than now. Yeah. What's but the plans show the double plateau. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite greens on the golf course. I mean, I have yeah. been pre this completion and now post completion. Like there's something about it being the seventeenth hole too. I anticipate it through the entire round. Uh, just I, I don't know what it is about double plateau greens, but they've always stood out to me as as just en- engaging. I think of Blue Mound being another specific one that just I could play it every day of my life. Right. Of course, you remember in the original routing, the seventeenth was the fifteenth. Yeah, it was the fifteenth. Right. It's supposed to end right. the the second hole was supposed to be eighteen, ending with a clubhouse behind the green. Is that right? Behind the second green, where that little clearing is. There are no, not where the clearing is because that's the bluff. There's not enough room to build a of course the road didn't wrap around the green back then. Right. And and then my long term dream for what we do is we close that road and the club gets the land. So the the land to the right of the across the street now mm-hmm. from the second green has a big white house on it. That was one clubhouse site that was drawn on the plan. And the other one was over to the right of the third tee, which was the first hole. Yep. And and on the working drawings, it says about the clubhouse site that is right of number two green, use other site, use other clubhouse. So it, they wanted to have it over there to the right. I think the other I think the original idea is better and would be better for lookout. And I've you know, I've advised lookout to buy that house for twenty five years. I really think it's an important piece of property for the club to own. That, that second hole as a finisher would be a, just a wonderful two-shotter to come to come down on the match. Uh, that would yeah. be a fantastic, fantastic scene. And now, a, a, I, well, now left that oh. area left that when I joined the club was woods with a corral fence around it and crepe myrtles all around it is going to be, become the Sahara feature. And I say feature instead of bunker because on the plans, it's a waste bunker. So that you're going to have to drive across that on your T. You do have to drive across that on your T shot on three. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a waste bunker. And we're working really hard right now to, to get that set. It's just, it's been a hard place to get the grass to do the right thing, but, Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be really cool. And that'll be, a hazard on the tee shot on the second too. Hmm. Doug, you've been generous sharing uh, pictures of the completed work over the last uh, year or so, and and 
everyone you've sent has me more <laughs> excited to see it in person. Um, and I'm just curious if there was a favorite transformation for you or a favorite uh, completion. I think by the pictures, I'll just share mine to get your wheels turning. Um, I'm really excited to play the road hole. I have, Kevin, the professor knows this. I have a uh, affinity for the old course and it's endless uh, mysteries. And, and so uh, when I got to play a, a template, when I heard there was a template, you know, this idea of templates back in, gosh, 2017 probably is when I started to realize it. Um, the old, the old course I had experience with, and I was like, okay, the, the road hole, I'm going to look forward to playing. And I remember playing the old road hole and it just completely missed for me, uh, <laughs> at lookout the, the, the Silva version or what, what, what maybe it was not fully restored, but it just didn't. But I look at the images of, of what you guys completed on that one, which I believe is 16 50. and, oh, it's 15 apologies. Um, 15. And I'm like, well, that <laughs> Not only is that a template, that looks to me like the freaking rolled hole. So I, I think that transformation was significant. But what, what are some that stand out for you uh, in the completed work? Well, 15, you know, I, I, I've kept records to because some the members that, that had been playing it for a long time, the older members had gotten used to their golf course. And as the way it, it always is, you know, this new golf course, we, we don't like this. This fifth green is crazy, you know, the. You know, they would complain about this, this stuff because the shots that they used to hit that would be good were now, now no longer good. And the 15th mm -hmm. hole was as much that way as anything. The fifth hole they complained about a lot. And I said, you watch him. The fifth hole is the most birdied hole on the golf course now, I think. Mm -hmm. Because as I told my son, when I was out there playing, I hit my shot up on that plateau of the fairway hit my tee shot there. And I said, from here, if I don't have 10 feet or less for birdie, I suck. I should get this thing close. And he says, why is that? I, he was down below. And I said, because if I hit it right, it's going to go left. If I hit it left, it's going to go right. If I hit it long, it's going to stop. And if I hit it short, it's going to roll out. So it's just, you know, the pins back there where most of the pins are, you know, you're going to, and it's a wedge. So, Anyway, a lot of people have done that, but they complained about it because the old hole, which was hard to putt, uh, mm -hmm. was more predictable than that. It didn't have any quirky bounces. There wasn't any as much luck involved. There's always been luck involved at, at lookout, but not, not as much as there is on the fifth hole now. The 15th hole, anyway, I keep track of which holes I've, you know, which ones were the last ones I parred, which ones were the last, you know, the toughest to birdie. And I have now birdied every hole on the golf course, but the last one was the 15th. And I, I could not figure wow. out how to get the ball close to the hole. And it'll, it, that's going to change because there are new greens. We've got a new grass. The grass is AU victory. And, and one of the things we've learned about AU victory is it doesn't grow. That's why everybody loves it is because it stays alive, but it stays fast and it doesn't grow very fast. So if you mow it every day, it'll get to 13 and a half in, in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And these greens hard as tabletops because they're new rolling at 13 and a half are unplayable. They, you know, there were pins out there. I would go out, I live near the 16th green and I'd go out and send a video to the superintendent and say, this is not a pin position. And then 
then hit a putt from there on video and send it to him and say, and this is why, you know, I've got a putt here from about 20 feet. And my next shot, if I don't happen to hit the hole with this putt is from 30 yards. So there was a few, there are a few places like that. And that will, that will soften over time as the thatch grows in and the grass gets established and things like that. So the course has, has some growing in to do, but the 15th hole is tough and I have learned how to play it. And basically you have to hit one more club than you need and hit it softer and bounce it up there right to the right of the road hole thing. And it'll climb that little hill and then it'll roll down to the right. Most of the pins are on the right. If you're on the left, you need to bounce it in from the left and eat and, and if you get stuck up there on the left, then you're really in trouble. I mean, you make a five, but it's hard to make a par from left of the green, which sounds a lot like the 17th at St. Andrews. Yeah, I, I was going to say, what you're describing, I think I've played that a few times. Yeah, yeah and you bring up something I think connects to St. Andrews too. Doug, I always appreciate your level of attention detail, and I'm sure you've thought about this question. With the contours of the greens that look out, in order for them to shine, like what would your ideal green speed be for them if you could get it cut it to whatever every single day where where would you want those greens so you can actually take advantage of the contours and pin it where you want it to be 10 or 10 and a half Mm -hmm. and why is that well i mean like sweetens there are greens out there that have contours on them that are really really interesting at 10 and unplayable at 13 so Mm -hmm. you lose so many pins when the greens are rolling 12 that it's not worth it you know the, you've got plenty of challenge at at 10 10 i don't know if y'all know this but we the superintendent at black creek was the superintendent at sweetens oh yeah shout out Brad. and i asked him i asked him how you know what did you keep those greens at and he said anything faster than 10 and a half and it was not not doable so they kept they keep them under 11 at sweetens and you know, people don't notice that. They don't. They don't look at that yeah. and say, "Golly, this is slow." They, they don't mm-hmm. seem slow, right? If you get above the hole, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And but lookout had kept their greens above eleven and at twelve and even up to thirteen a lot since they had done the renovation restoration in 1998. But but like every other club, if you go back and study the history of green speeds. I mean, eight was unbelievably fast in the eighties. You know, Oakmont was eight. Augusta was seven and a half. And, you know, Augusta for the tournament now, I think approaches 14 sometimes. Hmm. So green speeds have gone along with the, the ball. The green speeds have gone really fast. And some of the old courses have too much contour for that to be playable you know and a couple of times this fall lookouts gotten in places where you couldn't play it i mean there were certain holes not all not all holes are like that but some holes i almost made an eagle on 14 and i ended up making a nine (laughs) (laughs) i can picture that in my head already what what happened on that one yeah i rolled up almost went in the hole and then rolled off the green rolled off the front and down into the fairway bunker from from where i did not realize at the time you cannot play even toward the green. You've got to hit over there to the left of the green, then you can get down in two or three, but you can't 
from that fairway bunker. Now, when we get, uh, when things get grown in a little bit better and the course softens up, that'll change because that, that the contour short of the 14th green, which are largely, uh, Kyle Francis doing once they've got grass on them, they'll, the ball will stop there. It just, they, we didn't have much growth in some of the new sod. Uh-oh. He went away. Are you still there? No, we're, we're still. Okay. Yeah, we're here, Doug. I, I, I think the, uh, gosh, you just listed, you know, all your involvement at uh, all these very different clubs. And we've talked about the Chattanooga golf scene and, and uh, how strong it's become. But as you look forward, Doug, and, you know, we got lookout. We're, we're chatting about a, a member club, uh, your, your involvement at places like the honors course on the very, you know, uh, really top tier of private club experiences that someone could have. And then, uh, gosh, we've mentioned Sweetens a good bit, you know, that is, uh, really publicly accessible. And you even talked about your, your, uh, involvement at Brainerd, Muni. I, I'm just curious from your perspective on in, in each of those segments of the, the golf world, um, where, where things are going to go. And, and maybe I think you're, you're just all your, your experiences and your knowledge. I think folks like us, Kevin and I, that are involved in the golf world and involved in our local clubs and involved in, you know, we, we want to make sure things are better for the next generation. And, and I think you are one of the shining examples for me of somebody who really cared enough to get it right, you know, to dig into the history, to understand and, and help these clubs make the right decisions. Not that all, they all were, I'm sure, but, uh, but, but you successfully done that. What, what do you think are some of the upcoming challenges of any club or any course that we got to be uh, on top of our game prepared for? Is it, is it the cost? Uh, situations that are going with with uh, labor and 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 you know taking care of our courses from a maintenance standpoint is it um, what what do you think are going to just be the keys of continued success or is it more of the same? Things have changed a lot, and I've watched guys like you form these societies and and clubs that are not clubs, kind of, and and avail yourselves of some private clubs. And I, I think about it a, a fair amount because I'm an owner at a private club, Black Creek in, in Chattanooga. And we're constantly trying to confirm with some, we have some members who are calculating how much it costs them to play around the golf, given how much dues they pay and what it costs to have a cart and all this kind of stuff. And they're comparing that with public golf facilities. And being a member of a private club is essentially a luxury. It's it's not going to be, it's not something that you you buy because you want to because you love golf and you want to play as much golf as you can for as little as you can, you know. But there are other pocket. The game is is much bigger than private clubs, and you know, right now it's the fastest growing sport in the United States, and this has all happened sub COVID, you know, after COVID hit and it's been, you know, exciting for me to see a place like Sweetens, for example, or the Charleston Muni 
it, because I, I love the game and I like to play with all kinds of people. Um, but private clubs are necessary to keep some of these places going and to preserve that part of the game. But the, the society, the new club and, and just, you know, regular games at municipal courses where there's 12 guys that show up every Friday are important, just as important to the game as the private clubs are. And, you know, making it accessible is also worthy. And, you know, when we built the, the golf course at Black Creek, the original developer, you know, gave me his kind of vision of a semi-public golf course and, uh, you know, what he thought could be done out there, which was, you know, not as high end as the development had ended up becoming. And I told him it does not cost any more to build a great golf course than it does a crappy one. It's, it's a matter of, you know, it's like laying carpet. You just, you put the features where you put the features, you build the greens and it costs the same amount per square foot to build the various parts of the golf course. You just got to get them in the right place and on the right part of the ground. And if you, if you do that, you can build a really great golf course for not much money. And then, then the option as to the options as to how you use it are much broader. You know, we, we will have tough times again in this country and some, some courses will make it and some won't. And I think the courses that make it are the ones that have the compelling architecture. That's just me. Hmm. Good point. But the, but the ones that have, yeah. you know, bells and whistles and flower gardens and fountains and things like that, that's just spending money to spend money in my opinion. And the honors drove a lot of what happened in Chattanooga golf. There was some good history here, but the honors being built and Pete dies embrace of strategic golf course architecture. Um, it drove the other courses to up their game too. And it was, it was one of the first, but there's no frills at the honors. You know, there's, there's not, I mean, there's service beyond your wildest dreams and there's nice cottages and all that, but on the golf course, there's, there's no frills, you know, there's, there's green tees and fairways and the rest of it's kind of looked after when they can get to it. I, I, I find, and, and we'll wrap here soon. Cause I know we, uh, we have a stop, but, um, I, I find you, Doug and people like yourself so important because, I think it's just the 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 grasp of what makes golf special or what makes us as golfers uh, feel good at the end of it all, you know, and really what what is the thing that compels us to play, that brings people together, that gets us out of the house and onto the golf course. And I I think sometimes it's easy clubs or businesses, we have bottom lines. There has to be profit in order for the club to continue and thrive and grow or the course. But it's sometimes I think, and I've been guilty of this as well, uh, starting any club, it, it, you're tempted uh, to make decisions forgetting what is the thing that makes this game special? What is the thing that all golfers enjoy and strive for and, and keeping it, you know, like you said, 
maybe away from frills and more into those those core elements of golf. You know, the fundamentals that really uh, make the game thrive, that bring us back. And and you mentioned architecture. I think it's one of the un, that people don't even realize that it is the thing that keeps them coming back and interested in going. That great McKenzie quote of, you know, people will give up the game without even knowing why because they're just not stimulated. They're just not interested. There, There's no challenge. There's no interest uh, strategy to it. So I just I just wanted to end with that kind of comment on thank you for for giving us time here. And, and I, I've personally learned a lot from you, Doug. And I know... <laughs> Folks that have listened have too, and it's been really fun to uh, uh, to see the last five years. and And congratulations on on what all the successes, all the clubs you've been involved with, all the courses you've been involved with, but especially Lookout. That must feel uh, that must feel really good for you standing where you are now. It does, and I appreciate that. But but giving me the credit when it's the Luptons and the Probascos and the Emigs of the of that club and of the golf world that really, you know, inspired me and taught me and led me and, and did it for a large part of the time. You know, I'm just standing on their shoulders. Uh, and they're still, some of them are still around They're you know, and, and still involved. So. The, the last thing I'll, I'll say too Am I right in remembering you didn't pick up the game of golf until your late twenties? Is that right? Yeah, twenty six. So if if you're listening and thinking, oh, this is you know something instilled at us at at you know childbirth, and uh, I mean, I think I I was definitely that way. I probably was swinging a club before I could walk. But but the fact that you started at twenty six, my father actually started the game uh, almost in his thirties, and and uh, it can. It, you know, it just catches us. It doesn't matter how, that's the beauty of it. It just doesn't matter what age you're at or what skill level you're at. This bug hits us, sticks with us, and and you can have the same golf life, you know, regardless of where you are in that journey. There's so much to learn, so many places and things to get involved with with the game. Uh, it's just endless, and, and you're a great example of that. Well, thank you, Matt. I love it. Doug, thank you. No, thank, thanks, thank you, and and uh, uh, professor, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll we'll chat with you soon. Okay, thank you, guys. Another another hour with Doug Stein. I feel blessed. What about you, professor? It's always so humbling to to talk to Doug. Um, just in terms of the wealth of information, his perspective on golf, his willingness to a good storyteller, right? Like it's just fun to be around. It's just me as a natural introvert where I can just sit there and prefer beer. to be around a campfire with him and just let him go for three hours. I would be plenty happy because I think one of the, like my biggest takeaways anytime I talk to Doug is, and, and I think about the restoration, renovation, changing golf course, private club thing, is his just level of detail and study. Right? There's death, he's a very knowledgeable person. He could go to any course and just say, oh, here's my knowledge. Here's what we're going to do. That's not how he would approach it, I guarantee. No matter what golf course he'd ever touch, he would go in and study that course, study the architect's intentions, and situate every decision within that. And I think everybody should note that. Anybody that gets in a position of power in a club, if you're just acting on your whims and biases and preferences, you're probably taking that club in the wrong direction. You need to situate that in the study of the history of that club, the, the design of the golf course, if it's a Ross course or a Rainer or whatever, and really think hard about that because 
I would love to ask him sometime, one or, one or times that you wanted to do something, then you studied a little bit and were like, oh, wait, no, that's not the appropriate approach. Because I think Lookout would be a perfect study of that. Anybody that's played it before this completion probably had billions of ideas about it. And when you go play it, it's probably not going to match a lot of your ideas about what the golf course uh, completion would have been. Yeah. It's so well said. I, every time I've, I've reached out to him for the pod, he's a very humble person. He's always like, you know, why you want to talk to me, talk to the architects, talk to, uh, you know, all the, all these, these, what he would call authorities on the matter. And what, what I like about people like Doug, I think I said it there, uh, when we were signing off is just, they, they've had to wear a lot of different hats, whether as business owners or as uh, members of committees or the actual guy who is, you know, the owner and operator of, a, of Black Creek. He's just had to look at all those perspectives. And, um, and I think the reality of it is, is they don't, these people like Doug don't get the credit. They don't. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and maybe rightfully they shouldn't because it, to, to what he said, you know, we're not the architects. We're not the, the the builders here. We're we're just weighing in. But things don't get done without somebody pushing mm-hmm. that that movement um, to to see it come to life and protect it. And that's mm. and, and not just to do it because it's an ego thing. I need to you know have my name on this or I need to do achieve that. It's it's much more about um, it feels like the right thing to do. And and like I said, he keeps he knows what makes golfers golf. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a, that's a, uh, uh, underappreciated thing in the game of golf or any industry where those are the guiding principles. Those are the things that he keeps an eye on. He makes sure that they don't overspend. I'm sure, um, because of those things, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and we both have been a part of clubs. We've been places we know that goes astray real quickly mm-hmm. when people start making it about the, the, vocal majority and what people are they're looking for and yeah people aren't going to agree you're not going to always have consensus but you you gotta uh have those in the wings helping make decisions who have a rational balanced uh perspective on all all the different factors and uh and he's just one of those people so that's why i like having him on it's a well-rounded conversation and uh anybody who's a student of history i think is a great um Great guest on the pod. Absolutely. So, yeah, that was that was that was a good one. I can't wait. I can't wait to go see the place and also get down to uh, another spring meeting um, at Sweetens. That's right. Thanks to the supporter of today's podcast, Titleist. Uh, Titleist, the number one ball in golf, also released their T Series irons that uh, you you can get fitted for today in a certified fitting uh, through Titleist. Check them out, Titleist.com. And also shout out again to our friends at Hyperice. You're the year of recovery, Professor. That's get yourself some some massage. Get yourself some stim. Get yourself some ice. Some compression. They got a large line of of products at Hyperice. So thank you for for their support. And Professor, we'll catch you on. The, I want to spin one. back real quick to Antas. We mentioned the balls and irons, and if you've been when this is recording, but also two weeks from now, if you are catching the best viewing of golf of the year. You might hear a little talk about their SM10s coming out too. That's like right. That's true. We got some wedge, all that. So look out for those. We're gonna do a little deep dive Oof. on wedges. You and I've been on a big wedge. I am convinced. Yeah, wedges are just fun to talk about. Oh. I love. Oh, and it's. I know from a strokes game perspective, not the most important club to talk about, but this year it's gonna be the club I talk about the most. 
I yeah, if I if I could only play golf with one club for the rest of my life, it's gonna be a wedge, man. I just love going to the backyard, hitting different, you know, spins, different trajectories, wedge work, always enjoyable. So yeah, look forward to that. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>